All right, good morning. We'll get started. We're going to go old school today because my PowerPoint corrupted. So all that came out was the map. So no words. I don't have any of the, the scriptures in there. So we're going to have to actually read them. But we're, we're discussing earlier how old school should we go? Should we go first century old school, in which case we need 10 men sitting here and the women need to be scattered about? Do we go Africa old school, which is men on one side, women on the other? Well, that's actually not even old school. That's like today. <laughs> actually, one of the churches we go to in Africa is, is the liberal church, and they have a men's section, a women's section, and a double section. But you should, if you're sitting in the middle section, you better be married to the girl you're sitting with. They, they will stop the church if you sit next to a woman you're not married to. They're, 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 they're pretty straightforward about that. And I said, the, and then the other thing you have to know about African churches is that uh, the person in charge of the church is not the lead elder of the preacher. It's his wife. Because what, what you do is when you come, especially the small village churches, they don't have money, but they have food. And so she's got a big bowl over fire out the back door full of water. So when you come with your offering, you put it in the bowl. The preacher preaches until she tells him lunch is ready. That may be an hour. That may be two hours. Sometimes it's three hours, depending on how much they bring. But you can't stop church until lunch is ready. A friend of mine is a, uh, just came back from seven years there, and he said that's the hardest thing he had to learn, is that, A, the person in charge of the church is not the lead elder. It's her. The cook. It's the cook. <laughs> Which I laughed. I said, we, we've known that for years. <laughs> we know who's really in charge. Uh, so, yeah, and so he, said you, he says he learned that you preach, and then you look at her every periodically, and she would either give you a yes or... <laughs> And he learned you do not, do not stop until she gives you this, where it gives you, yes, it's ready. If you stop before this, she'll come and tell you you need to preach more. You did not preach long enough. When's your next trip? Well, even Tuesday. Where in Africa are you going? Going to Malawi, uh, which is, it's nice, it's springtime there. Uh, well, it's springtime for Africa, which is not like our springtime. It's, it's just really dry and a little bit warm. But not super warm. All right, so let's talk about. It. Remember, we're, we're, the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter telling the story, and that there's no chapters and verses in the book in the original book. It's just a continuous story. So all the stuff we've talked about the last two weeks really just roll together, and Peter is he's not just randomly remembering things that Jesus said. The book has a very distinct structure as it goes through. All four Gospels have very distinct structures because they have very distinct audiences. And so in Mark, Peter is telling Mark the story, and they're talking to the people of Rome, which is a mixed Jewish-Gentile church. So this is the least Jewish of all the Gospels. It has exactly seven parables in it. You look at Luke, uh, I actually had a thing in here how much was in here. Luke has, I don't know, he, and between Luke and Matt, Matthew, they probably have 35, 40 parables. 
All the parables in one of those two. Mark has seven. In fact, in chapter four, we do almost all seven of them. Because it, a parable is a very Jewish teaching uh, technique. If you think about Greeks, what do we all learn? What do we all read in, uh, probably was it middle school? Aesop's Fables. That, that is a very Greco-Roman teaching style, was a fable. A parable is different than a fable. And, and so we, today we're going to talk about the, the apostles, have, even the apostles have problems with parables. Uh, and so, you know, as you remember from last week, uh, they were talking about, you know, he's picking the apostles, he's healing people. Uh, the first eight chapters of Mark take place in Galilee. So the story is very simplified. He's in Galilee. He does everything. There's an interlude in the middle where he talks for a chapter and a half to the apostles about who am I as they're moving down to Jerusalem. And the last part of the book all takes place in Jerusalem. So it's a very simplified, and that's why people have issues with Mark, is that because if you look at Matthew, Matthew's much more... Uh, Jesus starts here, he goes here, he goes back down here, he goes back up here, he goes back down here. He, is, he probably goes to Jerusalem more times than the one time Mark tells you about. But that, that doesn't matter to Mark because that's the story that they're telling is, you know, their theme is, who is Jesus? Jesus is Messiah. And in Mark, there's only two responses to Jesus is Messiah. And we see that all the time. You either fall down and worship him and say, you're the Messiah, or you run screaming from him. Both of which you recognize the fact he's the Messiah. But it's, in one point you go, you're the Messiah, I'm, you know, all right, here's my response. The other one is, you're the Messiah, and oh, you're messing with my plans. Last week we saw that, because, you know, all the people come, you know, they were talking about, you know, people from Tyre and Sidon, Jerusalem, are all coming up to Capernaum. And Jesus is healing them. And, you know, we had the whole thing with the Sabbath, right? And the question is whether or not that may have been a plant. Uh, if he was from Capernaum, everybody knew him, right? Capernaum's only about 1,500 people. It's a mixed Jewish, non-Jewish town. There's probably 600 Jews there. They all know each other. So if the guy had a withered hand, everybody knew him. If he came from Jerusalem with the Pharisees, they may not have known him. And so, you know, so Jesus heals uh, the man with the withered hand. Just to give you a little background, there are two huge schools of thoughts among the Pharisees, Hillel and Shammai. Uh, Hillel is interesting because two, Hillel has a daughter. She marries this guy Gamaliel. You know Gamaliel because he shows up twice in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's the guy that says, if this is from God, we can't stop it. If this is from man, it's going to fizzle out. That's Gamaliel. He is the, he is the leader of the Hillel school of Phariseeism. Phariseeism. The other thing Gamaliel does, he's Paul's, he's Paul's rabbi. Paul studies under Gamaliel, which is the son-in-law of Hillel. So that's, I'm trying to think of an equivalent uh, that's like being a Nick Saban, you know, a coach from the coaching tree of Nick Saban. That's Paul. 
You know, it's like he's not Nick Saban, but he is from that coaching tree. That's what Paul is in the New Testament. Paul is a direct descendant of Hillel. Shammai is the other school. Uh, Hillel actually survives the fall of Jerusalem in 70 because they don't get along at all with, with the Sadducees, so they're not in Jerusalem when it falls. Shammai is a little more traditional. So the, the whole healing on the Sabbath is actually an argument between these two groups. Shammai says, if you're in synagogue on the Sabbath and somebody has a, basically dies, you don't touch the body. You don't do anything. You just continue worshiping around the body. You don't move the body until the Sabbath is over. If it's in the synagogue, dead on the ground, don't touch it. If they're having problems and you can help them, don't touch them because that's work on, that's work on the Sabbath. Hillel said, uh, if someone, if, because uh, we'll talk about it later, you know, if your mule falls uh, you know, in the ditch, Hillel says you can get it out on the Sabbath. Shammai says you can't. Uh, and so when you see the Pharisees coming up and treating them, that tells you what school they're from. And then the other part of that story is the Herodians are, uh, Herodians and the Pharisees are as far apart as you can get. That's literally like saying uh, that Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump are getting together to plan something for America. That's how far apart they were politically. The, the Pharisees could not stand the Herodians. The Herodians could not stand the Pharisees. But you see in the last end of the last chapter, Jesus is disrupting the power structure, the power structure by just being Jesus. He's teaching, he's saying that the kingdom of God is here, he's healing. People are flocking to him. And so these the Herodians and the Pharisees are losing their power base, and then they're actually getting together. Which is, that's one thing, unless you understand some of the background, you just miss in, in the, book of, the book of Mark. And Peter said, you know, basically says, hey, now they're getting with the Herodians. And, and like I said, it's just, it's just one of those things to realize if they're polar opposites. They cannot be farther apart. The Herodians and the Sadducees talk, dealt all the time together. So those two get together would not be a big deal. The Pharisees are 180 degrees opposite. All right, so, so I don't have my reading glasses on. Someone have, uh, we'll start with chapter 4, uh, read through uh, the ninth verse. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and set in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell in good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, 
some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, so he's, this is clearly not the only parable Jesus probably taught that day. You know, because part of it, Mark, we're, get, we're getting a very quick snapshot of what he does. I'm sure he taught for a long period of time. This is the one they, they record. Uh, parables among rabbis were very, very, very common teaching technique. Uh, and they frequently had three or four uh, parts to them. In fact, my PowerPoint is disrupted. I actually have one from Gamaliel who talks about uh, they're given a par someone asked them tell me about students and he goes well students are like some are like sponges some are like funnels some are like a sieve some are like a, uh, a mesh net and then he left and so then there's all this writing going on about what Gamaliel actually say about that and then he actually comes back later and writes a letter to the guys explaining, explaining his explanation. You know, it says, a sponge, he says, a sponge is not a good student. They, they absorb everything, the good or the bad. They don't make a filter. They, it's just absorbed. He goes, there are funnels. He goes, we, we've all, we all know people funnel, right? In one ear and out the other. He said, that's a funnel. Uh, it's, it's funny that the first century, 2,000 years ago, they had the, the same students we do today, right? We, we all, all of you have taught, you've seen those, the, the funnels that go, that go straight through. And then you have the sieve. The sieve was the good thing, you, it stops the good things and keeps the good things, and then the, the dross goes away. It says, and then the net is the other way around. The good stuff drips through, and the bad stuff stays in the net. And so he says, and that's how he describes the four types of students that he has. So. So Jesus, when he gives this, the four types of seeds, they very, it's something that the people, the Jews at that time, would have expected to hear. And so, it's funny, because I know, to me, this does not seem like a hard parable. Some of the other ones he's going to do in a little bit are much harder. This seems a pretty straightforward parable. And then, uh, you get to the end, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. That, that, again, a very Jewish statement saying uh, if your heart is right, you will hear this. It, it's not like, you know, if you're deaf, you can't hear this. He's, he's basically saying it has to do with the condition of your heart. If you're, if you're looking for the truth, the truth is here. If you're not looking for the truth, you won't see it. Uh, and then chat, verse 10. As soon as he was alone... His followers, along with the twelve, began to ask him about the parables. So, I mean, so you, I, in my mind, I can just see, you know, the apostles are rowing the boat, right? Because he's out on the boat, on the lake, talking to everybody. As soon as they get done, they land the boat, and the apostles go, uh, Jesus, about that parable. And then he answers them with a very confusing answer. I'm laughing. The answer to the, to the parable is much harder than the parable. His answer is, To you have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but, to who are, but those who are outside get everything in parables, 
so that while seeing, they may not see and perceive, and while hearing, they may not hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven, which comes from Isaiah. Uh, and so that's a, if, if you want to Google that, there are a thousand different interpretations of that little piece of the book of Mark. Uh, the, the other thing is, in the middle of this, uh, your, some of your scriptures may say secret, mystery or secret. Uh, those are the same thing. He doesn't, he doesn't think, he doesn't mean mystery the way we interpret mystery. The way, what he means is a previously unknown thing that is now known is, is what he is saying. So a mystery to us is something that is currently unknown, right? Because, you know, there's all, you know, if you go on, the, you know, on TV, we have, you know, all the mystery, the mystery of who killed who. Uh, on, there's a whole, in fact, there's a whole cable channel for that of just, you know, who's killing who, who killed who uh, mystery shows. And then all, you know, all the mysteries, you know, what, what, it's the unknown. When he is referring to mystery secret, he's not referring to the unknown. Because Jesus is very upfront with, I am who I am. Because, and Mark is very upfront telling this story because everything Jesus does, only the Messiah can do. So it's very, very straightforward. The people are trying to make it complex. Because you're trying the, the different pharisaical branches are trying to force Jesus into their form of Judaism. The Sadducees, we'll see later in the book, try to force Jesus into to supporting the Sadducees. The Zealots try to force Jesus into being the new emperor that's going to put the Jews on top of the world. Everyone keeps trying to force Jesus into their their pigeonhole for him. And Jesus keeps coming back to, nope, 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 here's what I'm here for. Here's what I'm here for. Here's what I'm here for. And then, you know, the next verses, 13 through uh, 20, are Jesus' explanation. You know, and uh, the, the four, you have the four soils, uh, but the... The ones beside the road is sown, and then Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown. So basically, there's no depth. And then those on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, they, they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no firm root, and then persecution arises and they fall away. And then others get sown among the thorns. Those are the ones who have heard the word, but the words of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for things enter and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I, you, get, you lose your focus. And then you have the good ones on whom the seed was sown in good soil and they hear the word accept and bear fruit 30, 60, or 100 fold. And 30, 60, or 100 fold are, again, it's a, it's a hyperbole to say, because uh, I actually looked this up, Typically, uh, you would expect like a 25 to 30 fold when you planted something. So uh, you see the doubling, 30, 60, 100. 100 fold would be like unbelievable. 
uh, that's like so far out of the norm that Jesus is making a very strong point that the people, the good soul, you do more than you think is possible. So it's a hyperbole. And then uh, Jesus comes back to them and starts talking more parables. A lamp was not brought to be under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. Again, if anyone has ears, let him hear. This parable of putting the lamp on the lampstand, again, is a very typical rabbinic. We have multiple examples of different rabbis around the first century using this exact uh, uh, parable simile. I don't know. This is why I'm not an English major. Is that a simile or a metaphor? I don't know. Got me on that one. Simile has like or has. has. So it's a metaphor. It doesn't say, I don't know, it doesn't say like or ass. I think it's a metaphor. That's why I have an editor for things. I put people to sleep all the time. Just remember that. That does not require like or ass. So he's basically saying it's a a very common, uh, we'll call it a metaphor, of the area the rabbis would talk about, you know, be that shining light on uh, the bed. And remember, most of these people, they didn't have electric lights. When you would come into the house, they would have one light burning, and so you would put it up as high as possible so it would shine around the whole house. And so again, the people would understand. Nobody would make a light and put a bowl over it. That's insane. It's, it's hyperbole. It's, in fact, it's funny. It's so crazy, it's funny. And people go, oh, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't put your lamp under your bed. Why? Uh, so, you know, so he, he, he is engaging hyperbole. And this is the, the four, five out of the seven uh, parables are in this chapter. And so after this chapter, G, Mark, or Peter, through Mark, does not record hardly any parables because it's not important to the story. And this is actually why Matthew's first in your Bible and not Mark. Uh, early church, Mark was first in the, because it was written first, it was the first one in their scripture. After, the, after Constantine comes in, Matthew is full of theology. Mark does not have much theology at all. Mark's about action. Mark's about Jesus says, I am this, I'm going to go do this. Then I'm going to go here. Then I'm going to go here. Then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's very directional. Matthew is full of theology, which is why the church gravitated towards Matthew and actually made it the first of the Gospels. Uh, but Mark was actually written first, and Mark, Matthew's actually based on Mark. And so, but... But Mark just, just does not have a lot of theology because, once again, it's a very, very simple book. Jesus is the Messiah. Here's your two response. Everything is binary. Everything's two responses here. You can either accept him or run from him screaming. You can't, you can't, there's nothing in the middle of this, in this entire book. And then uh, next comes verse 26. Parable of seed. In the kingdom of the God, it was like a man who cast seeds upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, gets up in the day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know how. 
The sorrel produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and the mature grain. And when the crop permits, he immediately puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. Uh, which is the only place, this, this is the only place in, in Scripture this particular parable is recorded. And basically saying to me, I'm going to give to me what it says, is that uh, man does not have control over the kingdom of God. He, may, he says, you know, the guy, you throw a seed out on the ground, you don't know how it grows, you don't know why it sprouts, you don't, you don't make it sprout, you don't make it grow, God makes it grow. And so that, that's what he's saying in this, I think, in this little parable. Uh, the, the different, and then when the crop comes, you know, you harvest it. And then we go to the parable of the mustard seed, which is actually, I think, in all three, uh, all three of the synoptic gospels. Uh, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? By what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed. A simile. It's a simile. Thank you. <laughs> it's like. There you go. It's a simile. A parable is like a simile. Uh, though it is smaller than all the seeds upon the soil, that when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Basically saying. It, no matter what you start with, the kingdom of God is going to grow into this huge, all-encompassing, and eventually, at the end of time, it's going to take over the entire earth. And so that's what he, again, he's saying, uh, you're not, we don't have a lot to do with that. It's going to happen. And again, it's that responsive. It's going to happen. Which way are you going to go? Are you going to accept it, or are you going to reject it? So every, almost everything you see in the book of Mark is that it's that very stark two choices. You can't be in between. And then Mark says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So again, it's that view of he speaks in parables, you either understand or not, and then all the, I just see that the apostles... Based on all the other, they always come and go, like, Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute, what did you mean about that? And you know, in my mind, I just see him going, like, you know, as a parent, sometimes when your kids come to you and you think there's stuff they should get, and you go, but let's go over this again. And so I think Jesus, on his day planner at night, said, Explain parables to the apostles. So, you know, he would preach all day, and then the parables, they'd eat right down, and they'd go, Jesus, now what, what exactly do you mean to that? It seems that over and over and over again, Jesus explained his parables to the, the apostles. And a lot of that is because, again, the apostles, until Jesus goes to the cross, do not understand what he's really here for. Even in their mind, they think he's going to be the, the emperor on earth. He's going to establish a kingdom because we know we're going to see a few chapters down the road, they get in a fight over who gets to sit right and left hand. You know, you see him as they're on the way to Jerusalem this last time. They're, you know, because now he's got, he's drawn huge crowds. He's drawn thousands of people. And in their mind, they're going, you know, he's going to be the emperor. You know, it's, it's good. You know, you really don't want to be the emperor. You want to be like the second or third man, right? Because no one ever assassinates the third person in the kingdom. They always go after the emperor. But, you know, the guys who are the second and third in kingdoms, they're living pretty good too, right? 
Uh, and so they're they're just they're they're struggling. They, they know Jesus the Messiah, and they're going like, I want to set up. There are twelve of us. You know, we need to find out where we rank in the twelve. Even among the apostles, you know, they they were fighting to who's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You know, who's number one? Who's number three? Who's going to be the right hand? Who's going to be the left hand? Who's going to get this? Who's going to get that? Uh, and so they really don't understand until after the crucifixion, and then it's like. I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or it's just suddenly all the stuff that Jesus said goes click and they go, oh, that's what he was talking about. And, and you know, and I think that's what you see in the first of Acts is them, the Holy Spirit is suddenly clicking in their head going, oh, that's what he meant. Not, but you see in the whole book as we go through it, uh, Everyone pulling Jesus in the ways that they want to. Tr- they're trying to put Jesus in a box, and he will not be in the box. He's going to. He's going to do what he's going to do. All right. The last story in chapter four. Uh, and on that day when the evening had come, he said to them, "Let's go over to the other side. They're in Capernaum. We're going to go over here." Uh, the interesting part of over here is that's not a Jewish area. He's about to leave Jewish Central in Galilee and move go across the lake. That's a very Gentile area. Which, to the Romans, remember who we're writing to, that's very important because most of the church in Rome is not Jewish. In the book of Matthew... You know, he's writing to the Jewish Christians. Mark is writing to primarily Gentile Christians. And so you see him pull in these episodes where Jesus is going to Gentiles. And, you know, in the last chapter, it talked about there were people from Tyre and Sidon heard Jesus and came down to Capernaum. Tyre and Sidon are Greek, are Greek uh, Gentile. There's almost no Jews there. So that's very much Gentiles coming to Jesus. Respond to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, or at least he can heal them at that point. And so leaving the crowd, they took him along with him in the boat, just as he was, and the boats were with him. So more than one boat, actually. Uh, there were, arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep in the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Jesus... Do you not care that we are perishing? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Hush, be still. The wind died down and it came perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Why do you have no faith? They become very afraid and said to each other, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So again, they respond. You know, what's the story? You, be, you either fall and worship him or you run in fear from him. So the end of this little story, what do all the apostles do? They're like, Who is this guy? They've been watching him heal. He has been, you know, people touch his gown and they're healed. He's preaching to thousands. And they still, uh, like I said, they're trying to put in a a pigeonhole and they don't grasp who he really is. And then the other part of this story is if you're Jewish or you're Greek or Roman, this story has two different meanings. If you're Jewish, this little story, who does it remind you of? 
Come on, you've all been you've been to Bible school. Bible school. Who was sleeping in the back of the boat? Jonah. This flashes back to Jonah if you're Jewish. All right. Greco-Roman mythology. Who who's the head? Jupiter, right? Who's his brother? Poseidon. The number two guy, the, the younger brother of Jupiter is Poseidon. Who, what's Poseidon in charge of? The sea. So to the Romans, Jesus is out on Poseidon's area. And so uh, the sea in the first century was a very scary place. Uh, it was unknown. Uh, the sailors didn't like to sail out from land very far. They liked to be able to see land when they sailed. And frequently at night they would come into port and drop their sails and drop anchor. Because, you know, you'd go out to sea and people would disappear. And so in their mind, it was a very scary place inhabited by demons and devils out of different than the land. And so the story of Jonah to the Jews is that that God is in control of the depth of the ocean as well as on land to the Greco-Romans Poseidon is in charge Jesus is stronger than Poseidon so he's actually giving you two very strong images here to both people that he's writing to that Jesus is the son of God because he controls I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for us to conceive of, but they have very different views of land and sea. And so I mean, the fact that he's healing people, you know, they lower the guy through the roof, he makes him get up and walk. Uh, he's healing people galore around, and everyone's going, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, we're good on that. But man, you get on the ocean, you get on the sea, that's a different thing. Because, I mean, the 12 apostles have been with him through all this. They watch him, he, they watch him still the storm, they are terrified. I mean, I, I don't, it's so hard, it's because we, I don't think we have a, a, a frame of reference for this, because to me, I mean, in the, in the medical field, the fact that, you know, the guy has a withered hand since birth, walks in, Jesus goes, and is healed, to me, that is spectacular. The guy's paralyzed, boom, get up and walk. Uh, you know, healing people—that's spectacular. Uh, I, I guess I, I, we're just—we're not. I guess we're not as afraid of the water as they were. But you know, to them, uh, you know, the, the sea gods were, were desperate. They were powerful people, and Jesus just goes, "Wind stop, wave stop, boom, everything stops." And then, and the the apostles just go, "Wow, this guy is something." You don't mind me just yes, saying this. I'm just kind of thinking the Bermuda Triangle and how we try to create a tremendous amount of mystery about what happens in the Bermuda Triangle. And that's about the closest I can come with Spock giving me the background story before they all disappear. Right. Within one area. Yeah, it's, it's, but yeah that, that's, you're right. That's probably our equivalent to this is that, you know, they're out on the sea. You know, and remember, you know, the, most, at least half the apostles are, are fishermen. You know, they're they're used to being out on the sea. Uh, maybe maybe that's why they were scared. They knew this was a really bad storm. But you have that whole thing of 
they're just, it's, this is kind of the, they're coming to the realization that this guy, this guy is really something now. After this, after this story. I mean, I, he, he's a rabbi, he's able to heal people, but when he, when he, when he stills the wind and the waves, and they're going like, wow, this is something. And so we're about, the fourth chapter, he's about halfway through his uh, Galilean ministry. He's about to go into the Gentile areas of the next chapter and start doing some miracles that even, he starts doing miracles to Gentiles. And so part of that's that Peter slash Mark explain everybody is involved in the kingdom. Because, you know, the Jews were very exclusive. Even if you converted Judaism, you were never more than a second-class citizen. And Jesus is, in this story, the Peter... The way we used to be. What? The way we used to be. Yeah. Well, sometimes still are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You got your you got your real Christians and you got everybody else. It's Church Christ, real Christians. Then we're stepping down to them. And then uh, who's on the bottom? Probably I have to pick. But yeah, uh, so that that's Jesus once again tearing down barriers. But again, I I don't think the apostles really understood this until two years from this point when they're on the other side of the end of the book of Mark, on the other side of the crucifixion. And remember, you know, Peter is writing this 30 years, between 20 and 30 years after all these events happened. Because he's telling the story to the next generation of why Jesus is the Messiah. Because they, they're all, they're all, obviously they're all getting old. Peter's going to be dead in a year or two after this. Mark, probably no, not much longer. Uh, and so they're really aiming for a very particular audience, very particular message, which is Jesus is Messiah. He's the Messiah of everybody. Not just the Jews, but everybody. And then he's more powerful. Remember, the emperor is a god. You had to worship the emperor in Rome at this point. That's actually how they paid their taxes. You had to go to the emperor's temple and pay your taxes to the emperor as a sacrifice. Because we know about 30 years from now, there's letters that go back and forth because the Christians quit going to the emperor's temple. And they're trying to, they're trying to say if that's a good or bad thing. They don't, they don't pay their taxes, but they don't cause trouble either. So it's, it's, you see these, these arguments back and forth. Uh, but that and so the we're in Rome the emperor is God and Mark Peter slash Mark are saying Jesus is more powerful than him he's more powerful he's right here he's more powerful than Poseidon and he's going he's going to get into a little bit later some more miracles that are more powerful than Ju- Jupiter because he's going to be able to raise people from the dead all right. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Just 
yeah, just remember as you read this, this is a single story. There's no chapters, there's no verses. And just read the first eight chapters, just read them, because that's the first, that's the first part of the story. And then all that story, they just flow. All the stories flow. And so Peter and Mark intended for that to be just a continual, here's what Jesus does for roughly two years. They don't, they don't put time on it like Matthew does. Matthew really talks about, and we were here for so long, we were here for so long. Mark is kind of like story, 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 story. Jesus went here, he went here, and that. And a lot of walking, I guess. A lot of, a lot of walking, yes. He's, because every time you look at all these places, he's going like, oh, wait a minute, he's over here now. He's over here now. So the good thing is that uh, if you were one of his apostles, you were in shape. You got, you got your 10,000 steps a day. That's not going to be a problem. Uh, on their fit, uh, Peter's Fitbit probably said, you're good. Yeah, you're good. Yeah. He closed all the rings today. That's right, he closed all the rings. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, and so... Uh, I tend to think, Mark, more... I missed your very first one, so I might have missed it, but historically, I tend to think Mark more to the eyes of Peter through the voice of Mark. This is still Mark taken by the Peter. Yes. And then, because Mark has got a history of where he traveled and where he went. And although he spent his last time with Peter and with Paul. Yeah, yeah, he, he that's he, the thing he, is that he's he's both. So I, I give him some credit for Oh he, for he's de- he's definitely I, I that's the thing is that until we get to heaven we won't be able to ask them go like, now whose idea was who was the editor? You know, was it Peter sitting around and telling stories and Mark going, wait a minute, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Or was it Peter saying, Here, here's the story, and Mark writing it down. Uh, you because know, Mark, Mark actually shows up, by the way, in this book, uh, in one half of one sentence at the end of the book, Mark shows up. Uh, and that, but really this is, and then I'm sure... Because the other thing to think about when, when we talk about all this, remember Paul's or Paul, Saul, we'll call him Saul, he hasn't changed his name yet. Saul's around. Every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, where's Saul? Where's Gamaliel? Gamaliel lives in Jerusalem. He's on the, he's on the uh, Sanhedrin. Who, a rabbi only had a small number of disciples. So Paul is clearly one of the lead disciples of Gamaliel. So Paul almost assuredly saw Jesus before uh, the road to Damascus. In fact, Paul may have been, when you see the Pharisees send people to Jesus to ask him questions, there's a good possibility that was Paul, was Saul. Because Gamaliel would not have done it. Because a rabbi doesn't go to talk to another rabbi. That's culturally not appropriate. You would send your student to go question the other rabbi. So there are times, we'll see when he gets down towards Jerusalem, that the Pharisees start coming and asking questions. There's a good possibility Paul was involved in some of that. And so, you know, you have to wrap your mind around that. So the whole thing of Paul, Paul is not ignorant of these stories. Because he's in Jerusalem, and they're here, you know, because we know there are people in Jerusalem going up to see Jesus in Capernaum. So we know Paul is hearing these stories. 
And especially the fact that the, I guarantee the questions are you know, just like we talk about preachers. You know, what, what, what about the preachers? You know? The Hallel School and the Shammai School are arguing Jesus is a great rabbi. Everyone admits that. I mean, he's got thousands of people are coming to him. So that, that elevates him into the great rabbi status. The quest, I'm sure they're in Jerusalem arguing about which school is he from. Because Jesus acts like, a, acts like a Pharisee. He teaches like a Pharisee. He, his students are like Pharisees. He's going to break with the Pharisees a little later on here in a minute. Well, he already, he's already started. He's breaking lots of Pharisaical rules. But he's still pretty much considered a Pharisee. And so the two schools, Gamaliel and Shammai, would be in Jerusalem arguing about, because they argued about everything. Because we, we have writings in the first century. They literally argued about everything you can imagine. You know, because, you know, what's the rule of when, when is it dark on the Sabbath? It comes from the first century. You lie a white thread and a black thread on a black cloth. When you can no longer tell the difference without the lights on, that's sundown. And that took them months or years to come up with that definition. They argue about everything. And when does the sun come up? Well, again, same thing. When you can tell white from dark, the sun's up. And so, uh, so you know they're in Jerusalem arguing about this, this new rabbi. Is he, is he from the school of Hallel? Is he from Shammai? And Jesus, when he teaches, falls on Hallel most of the time until they get to marriage and divorce and then he goes to Shammai, which, of course, blows everyone's mind because once you're in a school, you're in the school. They don't switch. This is not like you know the NFL where you can go free agent to the other team. Once you're in Halal, if you're Halal, you're Halal. If you're Shammai, you're Shammai. Uh, and Jesus starts jump, and he starts taking the other guy's view and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I know you, it was written this, but here's what here's what the Lord really meant about that. And then they realize, wait a minute, you're not you're not that. Which is why you see at the end of the story. All the Pharisees getting with the Sadducees and getting with the Herodians say, we got to get rid of this guy because he doesn't fit in anybody's box. He, he is not what we're looking for. He is not what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. Because they know, what, they know what the Messiah is going to do. And this whole book is Peter through Mark telling you, no, this is what the Messiah is going to do. All right, we'll see you next week. I'm going to Africa. Andy's teaching next week. Yep.